That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks so much for taking this next hour uh, to spend some time with me and and talk about and dig into some subjects and conversations that maybe go a little deeper and a little bit longer um, than oftentimes the ones we have, at least about some things that are going on in the world. And uh, really happy to have you uh, here with me. Uh, if you are listening live, thanks so much for doing so, and good afternoon. If you're listening as a podcast, thank you so much for subscribing and leaving me a review. I really do appreciate it. And, of course, you can get this wherever you get your podcasts. You can also uh, connect with me directly at my Facebook, or my, excuse me, I should say my website, wordsbyjdk.com, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me rather easily. would love to talk with you. Uh Right at the outset, love to uh, thank yet again the generous sponsor of the show, Airway Science for Kids, uh, for all that they do to make this show happen and to bring these subjects to you. You can find out more about them at airsci.org and the wonderful work they do to bring uh, life and career pathway opportunities in aerospace to underserved youth. Uh, it's an amazing organization, what they do, and really appreciate their support. We are just going to fly solo again today. Uh, so I had some opportunities to bring some guests in, uh, and some of those fell through. But really, in light of some things that have happened in the last week, I thought maybe it might be good to have a solo show and take some time, just you and me, to reflect on a few things uh, that have gone on. So let's kick off where we're going to go with all this with our weekly news recap. What in the world is going on? Let's jump into it. They're ready to go on the offensive. Uh, Crimea has been annexed uh, for a long time uh, and stating that you're going to take it back and taking uh, distinct steps like the strike you just showed shows that they mean it. And this is going to be something that's gonna, really going to shock uh, President Putin because if they were able to, to, to recover any of Crimea, it would mean a net loss uh, for Putin uh, for the entire invasion. They already had annexed this, this territory before. So this is substantial and it really shows that Ukraine wants to go on the offensive. That, of course, was a discussion about uh, the sudden and surprise attack by Ukrainian forces on Russian-held Crimea last week, in particular an attack on an airbase there that uh, destroyed at least eight Russian aircraft, their ammunition, and all their supplies as well. Crimea, of course, uh, was Ukrainian territory until 2014 when Russia, in its first push uh, into Ukraine, annexed that peninsula. It has since become a, I guess you could call it really a big resort area, much like it was uh, during the time of the Soviet Union. And so it was filled with Russian tourists who were there on vacation, on holiday. And suddenly, in uh, from sources that the Ukrainian government has not uh, articulated yet, suddenly there were explosions at this airbase, and it sent a number of people fleeing uh, Crimea in fear. And uh, there are, most, most reports say it was Ukrainian special forces working with local partisans. But the reason why this is significant is that what happened at Crimea was really far from the front lines. This is uh, a good distance behind the front line where most of the fighting is happening. 
And it's on the other side of the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Kherson. There's a land bridge at Kherson that goes from uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's uh, mainland over to Crimea. And Kherson is right in the middle there. And so this suggests that the Ukrainians have a much further reach than, than anybody thought that they had had before to cause problems behind Russian lines. And uh, certainly that indicates that Russia maybe has even more problems than they thought they had uh, with winter approaching. And of course, with winter approaching, as those lines stabilize, it's going to give uh, Ukraine and Russia more time to build up their defenses, build up their weapons to fight again in the spring. And that's an advantage to Ukraine because defending a territory uh, is easier to do on some level when you have time to prepare for it than it is to overtake territory. So I think that's really important uh, for us to be thinking about in this. In addition to that, uh, 16 ships now full of grain, badly needed grain in Africa and the Middle East have left Ukrainian Black Sea ports. So that agreement between Ukraine and Russia appears to be holding for the time being, uh, which is good. And also oil prices seem to be dropping a bit, not just not because of anything happening in Ukraine and Russia, but for other reasons. And so in that sense, that part is good news for the ripple effect on the global economy. So I'm going to continue to keep putting Ukraine uh, front and center because it is perhaps the most important thing going on in the world. Uh, Certainly in the United States, the second clip is probably the second most important thing going on in the world. Good afternoon. Since I became attorney general, I have made clear that the Department of Justice will speak through its court filings and its work. Just now, the Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. That search was of premises located in Florida belonging to the former president. The department did not make any public statements on the day of the search. The former president publicly confirmed the search that evening, as is his right. That, of course, is Attorney General Merrick Garland last Thursday giving a press conference in which he announced that he was uh, asking a court to unseal the search warrant that the FBI had used to search former President Trump's uh, home and estate in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, for what turned out to be 11 boxes of classified information that the president had not turned over with the original 15 boxes that he, of classified information that he had taken from the White House at the end of his presidency. And this was, of course, the big news of last week, because uh, this turns out to be a criminal investigation into possible violations of the Espionage Act committed by the president and those around him by refusing to give back all of these documents. It started way back in January, where the National Archives and Records Administration uh, realized that there were a lot of documents that were missing from uh from Trump's administration that had supposed to have been turned in when he left office. 15 boxes were given back. They realized going through those, the National Archives did, that there was still missing information, subpoenaed the president in the spring, and either he ignored that or was dragging his feet on it long enough that the concerns for the Department of Justice that there was classified information here pushed them to, as the pre former president called it, raid Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't really a raid, it seems like. They didn't even show up in their jackets or... Any of those things, they did it very quietly. So a week ago today, while we were actually in the middle of our show, uh, this was going on. And the explosion of outrage on the right, which turned out to be pretty premature, 
uh, was pretty remarkable. Uh, there were comparisons of the FBI and the Department of Justice to the Gestapo, famous Nazi, notorious Nazi secret police. There were calls from some lawmakers to defund the FBI, which seems ironic considering the GOP's denunciation of using that term to talk about law enforcement uh, when attacking those who use the word defund the police on the left. Uh, some protests emerged at FBI facilities, not very big. They got a lot of coverage, even though it was like 50 people showing up at them at max. Uh, some of them armed, most of them very angry. Uh, one individual uh, tried to attack the FBI office in Cincinnati and got killed for his trouble uh, for doing that. There, of course, were also demands for Garland to resign and that, or to unseal the search warrant, which then on Thursday he did, and everybody suddenly went, uh, and everything sort of, quieted down strangely because it turns out there are top secret the highest level of top secret classified documents in these boxes that the FBI was searching for including according to reports from the Wall Street Journal from the Washington Post and from the New York Times including material about nuclear weapons which takes this into very very serious territory because no matter what anybody wants to say about this first of all anything that is Top secret and given the SCI designation means not only are they top secret and only a few people can see them, but they can only be seen and kept in specific locations. And one of those is not a dank basement in Florida with a padlock on it. It's just it's that simple. And also, no president, no individual in this country has the right to simply declassify nuclear documents or declassify any documents simply by fiat. It doesn't work that way. There's an entire process that has to be done for these to be considered to be declassified. So a lot of the hemming and hawing and the excuses and things like that that have been coming from those who are defending the former president on this are becoming increasingly, increasingly, what's the academic term I'm looking for? Uh, lame is the word I'm looking for. It just doesn't work. And this is a significant thing if this is about nuclear weapons, depending on what they actually, those documents actually say. Uh, anything having to do with America's nuclear arsenal or its plans or what it knows about what other people are doing uh, is um, or going to be among the most vital of secrets uh, for the United States to keep secure. There's poor security <laughs> by, any, by any measure at Mar-a-Lago. This is a person, the former president, who has a history of being pretty loose-lipped when it comes to uh, sharing secrets. You might remember that he shared some pretty top-secret info that the Israelis had given him to the Russian foreign minister in the middle of a conversation in the White House, and there were a number of other things. The pr former president has strange affinities for people like Kim Jong-un and the Saudi crown prince. Uh, and, of course, everybody seems to forget this, too, but only eight months ago, a Chinese national who had been arrested and detained and put on trial for paying her way in to see the president and going in with a purse that was uh, sealed from uh, to be read by radar had a whole bunch of things in there, a whole bunch of different supplies that seemed to indicate that she was interested in finding some things there, uh, had found access to the president, literally could meet him at Mar-a-Lago. And it wasn't, as it turns out, it wasn't until after the subpoena earlier this year uh, that a padlock was put on the room where these 11 boxes happen to be. That's a problem, <laughs> no, matter, no matter how you put this. And, and when you have someone who is very susceptible to flattery, very susceptible to money, very susceptible to influence, this becomes 
a really, really big deal. Uh, and that's why this is being considered a criminal investigation. And ironically, 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 uh, the felonies that Trump may be facing in some of these documents, the nuclear thing is one thing. That's already a problem by itself. But uh, it was Trump himself who, during his administration, made a number of what he is being investigated for, these potential crimes, felonies, in response, of course, to Hillary Clinton's use of a personal email server to access and review uh, classified material, which was itself also a dumb thing to do. Uh, and, of course, that led to all, to all the chance of lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. It became almost a sl- the slogan uh, for the former president. And yet those same people now are so angry at the idea of the president being held accountable and perhaps himself being locked up that they are resorting to dangerous rhetoric, dangerous action. And that is a significant problem. In the meantime, for the former president, criminal charges or criminal investigations lurk around the corner when it comes to the January 6th Capitol attack, the fake electors effort, the push to find 11,000 votes in Georgia, uh, his business dealings in New York, and seemingly more all the time. So it raises the question, when is the line too far? Has it arrived? Uh, Will it arrive before the 2022 midterms? Will it be after that? Uh, Despite his claims otherwise, ignorance to these laws does not mean that the president is not subject to them. That's the same for anybody else. And it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out, particularly as people are lining up potentially to challenge Trump for the 2024 nomination, not just Ron DeSantis, but increasingly it looks like one Liz Cheney, uh, which uh, could be very interesting. So with that, all of that going on, that is what brought me to the conclusion that perhaps we needed to take a deep breath with all that stuff going on in the world, particularly what's going on in response to what happened at Mar-a-Lago and talk about some of the ramifications of this and maybe some ways to frame this that could actually be helpful instead of each of us having to decide what quote unquote side we're on, uh, maybe seeking some, some deeper connections with one another over what is happening here. So this week, it's just going to be you and me, and we're going to be talking about what I see, not just with the Mar-a-Lago thing and the responses to it, but a larger issue uh, going on that is behind all of this and perhaps behind a lot of the division in our politics a lot of the the heated rhetoric, which has consequences. And that subject is what I see as the three-headed monster of distrust, paranoia, and victimization. And that is something that can affect all of us, no matter who we are, where we stand on certain things, whether we're on the political right, we're on the political left. This is something we all have to watch out for because those things, distrust, paranoia, and victimization, are driven by fear. And usually fear of not having control of something or losing control of something or fearing a specific outcome of some sort in the future. It is not coming from a place of where we are in the present. As much as we might want to convince ourselves we are, it's usually because we're afraid of something that's ahead of us and making up stories about what's coming. We see it, for example, in how Russia talks about what it's doing in Ukraine, you know, That is distrust, paranoia, and victimization on that. In the responses, the overheated responses uh, to Mar-a-Lago, especially on the right, but also not exclusive to them, and and also in things like, for example, last week's defamation trial of Alex Jones, of course, the guy who runs InfoWars, 
who denied for over a decade that the Sandy Hook shootings of 2012 that killed 21st graders and six adults, he denied those were even real. And that led to hellish harassment of Sandy Hook parents by Alex Jones' supporters. Uh, And of course, that fueled the rise of his popularity in some circles. And that helped raise the whole paranoid, racist, hateful far right in this country over the last 10 years. And all of that, of course, fed on fear. That is what Alex Jones works in, is fear of what's happening, fear of getting, you know, uh, of being caught unawares or having things taken away. That language is pervasive in all of this. People fearful of their rights being taken away or whatever it may be. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're also going to talk a little bit about why this whole thing with documents matters so much. I'm a historian and I work in documents. I absolutely, you know, historians rely upon them to tell their stories. So we're going to talk a little bit about why that matters so much and what that might tell us about what's happening or what might happen going forward. So when we come back from our first break, we're going to dive right into that. So stay with me right here on this show is all about you. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, just you and me today. And we are talking about the three-headed monster of distrust, paranoia, and victimization. Uh, and we're sort of building around the responses to the FBI's uh, criminal investigation into former President Trump over uh, classified documents that he had kept in his possession at his uh, retreat in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. But we're also making it bigger than that and broadcasting a a wider uh, net than that. And when all of this started happening, one of the things that that I do, and I don't know if you guys do this, but one of the things I do is I just sort of absorb this stuff, right? You know, I'll watch, read read accounts. I don't watch the news very much. Uh, I tend to read it more than I, I watch it, mainly because I can't stand talking heads after a while. Uh, but also I think a chance to read, I can go at my own pace. I can look at different sources. I can take my time, uh, and not give too much credence to any one place and kind of build a larger consensus in my mind. But, uh, what also builds over that time is, uh, kind of a sense of awareness of, of what I think this indicates uh, or what it might be revealing or showing about, uh, where we are uh, collectively as a country. And as all of this rolled down last week and I was considering all of it, I couldn't help but think of Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon strip, famous cartoon strip 
from the 1990s and and those of a certain age who are uh, you know in their in their maybe their late 30s uh, 40s know it really well because uh, we grew up with it uh, and if you're younger than 30 you may not know but uh, Calvin and Hobbes was the most popular comic strip in the country for a lot of time for a long time published by Bill Water, uh, Watterson who just stopped decided to stop doing it after a while uh, much to my chagrin but nevertheless uh, it was a comic strip full of wit full of great humor about a little boy and his stuffed tiger who was only real only to him and they would have conversations about a number of different things being a kid uh, being a, being a child of uh, parents of social issues you name it and I thought of Calvin and Hobbes because there were two Calvin and Hobbes cartoons that I, for years, uh, going back to the 90s, had printed out and always had kept on my office door. And one of them was from January of 1995. And uh, in this, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. You can look it up if you'd like. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes are walking out in the snow. And Calvin says to Hobbes, I'm thinking of starting my own radio talk show. Then he continues, I'll spout simplistic opinions for hours on end, ridicule anyone who disagrees with me, and generally foster divisiveness, cynicism, and a lower level of public dialogue. (laughs) Hobbes says to him, it would seem you were born for the job. And Calvin says, imagine getting paid to act like a (laughs) six-year-old. That's the first one I was thinking of because uh, certainly what has been fueled since 1995 uh, what has fueled a lot of this, of course, are the rise, the exponential rise of voices in the public sphere, uh, not only on radio, but of course, since then, the inventions of podcasts, the inventions of social media, all of which have the power to create communities, yes, at their best, uh, but communities are dynamic. Communities uh, can communicate. Communities can disagree when they're healthy and effective. They also can create echo chambers. Connecting people who, whose ideas uh, might be really strange or really dangerous, uh, who simply then just talk to one another and build up, build up, build up. And for those subjects that are based around fear, based around uh, distrust, based around that three-headed monster, that can create environments in which uh, problems can occur and spill out. Of course, it is one of the dangers of living in a society with free speech. And at the same time, as the defamation trial of Alex Jones shows, you can't just say anything you want and have it be defended as free speech. You don't have the right to defame others. You don't have the right to spread lies. You don't have the right to yell fire in a crowded theater. There are limits to all of these things. Uh, But that cartoon always struck me because what ends up happening is it's such a human thing to want to gravitate towards listening to those with whom we already agree and only talking to those with whom we already agree. And we see its worst expressions, I think, in some of the reactions we've seen to the FBI's uh, investigation of the former president and not just among rank and file uh, Republicans and others who are who are condemning the FBI for this, but among our elected officials, because the problem is is if those echo chambers get so big that they begin to influence the larger public discourse, and they tend to do that because they're the loudest, when that happens, we start seeing people elected to positions of authority who are bringing in that distrust, that paranoia, that victimization, and this all these ideas that are really from echo chambers, but they think are universally applicable. 
And one of my fundamental beliefs is blanket support for anything or anyone is really, really difficult to justify. I don't care if we're talking about uh, a political entity or a political party, a religion or a church or a sports team. Uh, just blanket supporting something for the sake of supporting it, uh, I think, denies the fact that all of these things are made up of people. People who have their successes, people who have their failures, people who make mistakes, people who aren't always honest with themselves or with others, uh, people who are susceptible to failure. It's, it just doesn't seem to me to match who we are as people. And trying to be that way cuts off the connection. And, and frankly, we're usually, we're only in one of two possible modes in life. We're either in connection mode with ourselves or with other people, or we're in protection mode. And if we're in protection mode on too many things, too often for too long, suddenly we start seeing potential enemies and threats wherever we go and wherever we look. And then it becomes self-fulfilling over time. And then, of course, that pushes people more to talk to other people who feel like them in that same place. And it's just adding fuel, adding fuel, adding fuel. And so to me, that's, that's a big part of it. There's also a second Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I think was applicable here. And I thought of this, and this was the other one that was on uh, my office wall. And in this one, uh, Calvin and Hobbes are, are on the floor looking over some spread out newspapers all over the floor. And, and Calvin says to Hobbes, these are interesting times. We don't trust the government. We don't trust the legal system. We don't trust the media and we don't trust each other. We've undermined all authority and with it, the basis for replacing it. All Hobbes says is, Interesting, quote unquote, is a mild way of putting it. And then Calvin says, it's like a six-year-old's dream come true. <laughs> now, funny, but in light of what we're talking about, uh, maybe disturbingly close to the mark. Uh, and that is something that I think is concerning. And the thing that bothered me the most, besides the fact that there were potentially unsecured top secret documents vital to American national security in a place that they shouldn't have been with somebody that they shouldn't have been with. And that would be a problem no matter where it was, by the way, whether it was with the president or whether it was with your next door neighbor, it would be a huge problem. That's only one part of it. But the bigger problem with it was how quickly people were willing, particularly people willing to defend the blue, as they put it, were so ready to turn on the FBI, in some cases, in violent fashion, threatening fashion. The Department of Justice put out a memo to its own people two days after the investigation uh, began, memo to its own people to be careful about where they were going, what they were doing, to be more observant. And, of course, Merrick Garland, in the clip you heard earlier, talked directly about the importance of everyone continuing to do their jobs and, of course, doing so under the basis of the law with fair practice for everyone. And there is something to be said here. And again, blanket support for any entity, including law enforcement, I don't think is wise, depending on the circumstance and depending on what we're talking about. If you go back a few episodes of this show to when Mark Frazier, a police officer, was on here, he had great things to say about um, how to handle and how to view a number of the different challenges that we face in how we work with law enforcement to this day. That said, <laughs> it's indicative of the degree to which, depending on where you find yourself, 
um, on social issues or political issues. More and more these days, people are willing to just have knee-jerk reactions, put them out publicly, and make claims and advocate for things that either haven't been thought through at all because they're dangerous, or more frighteningly, they have thought through and they're okay with them being dangerous. That is an issue because the type of authority we're talking about with the Department of Justice and the FBI is the highest level of policing authority in this country. And the rigors involved in how law enforcement operates, how they're expected to do their job, and in particular how the federal uh, law enforcement agencies operate are really restricted and really strict uh, in terms of their rules, in terms of how they operate, and importantly, who they decide to investigate and prosecute. And I can't help but wonder on one level that the strong reaction that pe- some people have had, uh, particularly on the right, to the fact that this criminal investigation is happening is exactly because of that. An awareness, even if they don't want to admit it, that the Department of Justice taking the steps to do this indicates they must really think that there's been criminal behavior uh, in all of this. And whether that's criminal negligence or active criminality uh, is yet to be determined. Nobody knows yet, which is why it's important for all of us to continue to suspend judgment until more facts are known. But that by itself is really significant because the Department of Justice usually will not pursue criminal investigations of individuals of any kind unless they really think a crime has been committed and they really think they can prove it in a court of law. That has been well-established practice for years in the Department of Justice, no matter who we're talking about, FBI or otherwise. And so I can't help but wonder if that's part of the reaction. It's like suddenly, whoa, this suddenly got really real. The former president has been able to kind of continue to stave off criminal investigations. And suddenly now, perhaps ironically, in one of the quote-unquote smallest areas, at least as far as we understood up until Monday, uh, this might be the one that really brings some trouble, uh, or at least immediately will be bringing trouble. You know, and it, it underscored a couple of other things that we'd seen before. You know, uh, the strong identity, and this is the reason why I think blanket support of any in- entity or any person or any cause is, it can be dangerous, is because to go overboard with that, to identify so strongly with a person or a cause or an idea, the end of that, if one is not careful, is cultish devotion. Because what happens is if you get to that point, any criticism of that entity, and in this case it's criticism of a former president, is not being seen as criticism by those who are have it wrapped their identity around this person or this entity. It's seen as an attack. And not just an attack on that person or entity, but an attack on the people who support him, her, them, or it. It's highly personalized. And then what happens then is suddenly there is no room for conversation. Instead, you have people calling for civil war. Instead, you have people calling for people to go to war against the FBI and against law enforcement. And you have people acting on it, as we saw in Cincinnati. We've seen this to a certain degree before. Back in 1995, in Oklahoma City, two anti-government domestic terrorists, inspired by a lot of the same ideas 
just back those in 1995, blew up the federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, killing several hundred people. It was the worst act of domestic terrorism in the nation's history. And people were shocked by that back in 1995, not just because of what happened, but it was Americans turning on, on other Americans. They didn't. It was an indiscriminate bombing. They were targeting the federal building, but it was filled with people who weren't just federal employees, but people who were coming there, for example, to get passports or to do other business there or to drop off sandwiches because they were the lunch delivery person. There were children killed in this. So we've seen the things that can happen. And of course, January 6th, 2021 was rooted in that same very thing. Again, victim, distrust, paranoia, all those things working together combined with the outlets of social media and talk radio and the echo chambers that that can produce can lead to some of the craziest things that we can't even imagine somehow finding currency among enough people that they're influencing what we talk about, how we think about it, and actions that are taken. The QAnon movement is only the most extreme example of this as are the Proud Boys and other organizations like them, all based in fear and identifying somebody else or some other entity as an implacable enemy that must be destroyed. That, again, is coming from that three-headed monster. And it's only the most visible right now on the political right. And I personally do think, and I've been asked this, I personally do think There are far more dangers to the American Republic from the right right now than there are on the left. That doesn't mean that one shouldn't be paying attention to all sides, particularly the radical extremes of political movements. They all should be paid attention to. But it also means that really where the problem is right now is in the soul of the American right. And what is it going to stand for? And where is it going to go? And how is it going to do it? Because the pathway of turning on federal law enforcement or on the federal government more generally is a significant problem because it emboldens those like Timothy McVeigh and others who bombed the federal building in 1995. It gives them a sense of not just license to go out and do similar types of things, but the necessity to do it. And they frame it, as Liz Cheney pointed out, they frame it as love of country when really what's happened is they've been manipulated into that position. They've been lied to by the highest levels of the parties that they support from former president Trump on down. I don't care what we're talking about. Again, if we're talking about a former president or we're talking about people in your neighborhood, this is a significant development because even though fears of a civil war, it's not, it would never happen the way the first one did. <laughs> you wouldn't be having you know, militias and armies building up in the, you know, the state of Washington going, against, going to war against the state of Idaho. What you would have would be more of an insurgency. And most experts who talk about this believe that, that it would be almost be an insurgency of people attacking federal law enforcement or federal government buildings, provoking a federal response in communities around the country that then could descend into more and more violence in more and more areas, not just necessarily in cities, but in rural areas, wherever it might be. Nobody wants any 
version of this, except seemingly more and more people on the far right who seem convinced that this is the not only the only way to do to handle differences, but the preferred way to do it. And when the de facto spiritual leader, if you will, political leader at the top is doing everything he can to deflect his own responsibility, to demonize those who are doing their jobs in law enforcement and investigating them, when that's happening, of course, they're going to follow those diktats because they've already completely identified with him in that sense. The attacks on him are, in their minds, attacks on them. And because they've equated all of that with love of country, they truly believe they're defending the country instead of really looking to destroy it. And if you're wondering how we got here, (laughs) well, it's a good question to ask. And we're going to continue to be discussing that over time. But what we're going to talk about when we come back is what can we do? Some of this. Is there anything we can do or are we simply at the mercy of this wave of anger that is happening? So come on back on this show is all about you. We'll talk a little bit more about it. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you talking about all the events of the last the last week or so and uh, the continuing divisions in American society, uh, not just over what happened at Mar-a-Lago last week, but uh, more broadly than that. And I promised coming out of the last break that we would talk a little bit about uh, what can we do in all of this. And, you know, just to rewind a little bit, you know, as I said at the top of the show, the reactions on the right from particularly from uh, members of Congress and other political supporters of former President Trump uh, was, you know, my first reaction was methinks doth protest too much. Uh, it seemed it was a little overheated. And I suggested that some of that might be because the seriousness of this suddenly took a big turn, not just for uh, former President Trump, but for those uh, in elected offices who have supported him uh, and how they might look. I think that is some of that. Uh, it might be kidding a little too close to home, you know, and reactions that other people could be having could be when none of us, no matter where we stand, none of us really enjoy the feeling of being confronted with the idea that we might have been wrong. Or that our previous support for something might be nearing its end because of our conscience, because of just fatigue, because we as human beings change our minds. 
<laughs> and change our perspectives. And we're not just what we think, we're also what we feel and who we're around in our environment. It's really hard for us individually and collectively to confront those things. And collectively, perhaps even more so. Because in order to change things from a collective point of view among a group, like a political party or an organization, you have to have really uncomfortable conversations and risk being called a traitor, a turncoat, or being dismissed or ostracized. And nobody likes those feelings either. And of course, when we get into the tit-for-tat, you were wrong, I was right uh, mode of American politics and social conversations these days, that makes it even tougher because nobody wants to be told that they're stupid or they were wrong or that another side was right. It's juvenile on the deepest level, but it's still really real. And so for me, from my vantage point, when I think about what can we do, I think it's time for us to ask ourselves a little, some questions, no matter what side of this whole scenario we're on, right? What is wrong with changing our minds? What is wrong with saying, you know what, enough is enough? What is wrong with saying, okay, I once upon a time supported this person or this, this cause or whatever, and I still believe some good things happened, but this is too much. There's nothing wrong with that. So my call is for all of us to take a look at that and reinforce that idea in our own minds and in our own hearts and with those that we're closest to. That changing our minds is okay, particularly when new evidence comes along. That's what historians do all the time. And it's one of the things I love about history is that it's humbling that way. As new evidence comes out, historians need to adjust their conclusions or maybe even change their minds on a certain matter that they've held tightly for a long time. But in addition to that, it's not just about being willing to admit that to ourselves. I ask another question. How good are we at giving space to other people to change their minds? To not bury them for doing so. To not ridicule them for doing so. To offer that space for someone to consider that point of view. To have that difficult conversation or confrontation with themselves. But what does that take to do? In both cases, it takes something, I think, pretty elemental, but something that can be quite elusive. We have to trust ourselves. Trust ourselves that we can be okay with uncertainty, the idea of maybe changing our minds, that maybe we don't know everything about a given situation when we're first hearing about it or even long after we've started hearing about it, that we could be wrong. Do we trust ourselves to take healthy risks, to maybe try and connect with somebody who disagrees with you and maybe be disappointed, but maybe also see a bit of a shift, maybe some places to agree to disagree and be able to move on? Where are the areas that we ourselves individually can move quickly into distrust, paranoia, or victimization? It may not be about what's going on in the world. But maybe it's in your, our closest relationships. Maybe it's in how we're viewing our future, what we're doing for our jobs, how we work with coworkers. Where are those things? What do they reveal to you when you see them? What do they tell you about what you wish you were doing differently? How do those things show up and how do they affect our lives? The reason I say this is because if we ask it of ourselves, 
we are forced to pause from our positions, even our most righteously held positions. We're forced to pause and to be more open with the idea of being open. Just a little bit more. And that by itself, what that can do is it can weaken the bonds of echo chambers. It can give people exits from those. It can introduce people to varying points of view without them feeling threatening. And what that does over time is it can give enough people enough pause and enough (laughs) sanity, if you will, that the most extreme of solutions become less and less possible or desirable in their own minds. That is part of the whole human experiment, whether we're going back, whether we're talking about what we're talking about now, or we're going back to the earliest days of human connection and community. It's something that exists in all of us. And if if it exists in all of us to divide like this, it also exists in all of us to move beyond them or to neutralize them a little bit more. I mentioned Liz Cheney earlier. Last week, she released her last political ad leading up to this week's primary in Wyoming that she is widely expected to lose because of her, uh, her dogged pursuit of the January 6th uh, committee hearings against former President Trump. But in her last ad, she didn't even mention Wyoming. She instead talked about how the former president had manipulated people's love of country, told people who supported him that you have been lied to, And that in the end, facts win the day. Her language is interesting in all of those things because she didn't say you're stupid for supporting the former president. She didn't say you're dumb. She didn't say you're an enemy of the state. She didn't call him a deplorable. She didn't do any of those things. What I saw there is Liz Cheney giving some room, giving some space to people listening, willing to listen, to take a better look at themselves, their positions, and perhaps change their mind. It won't help her in the short term, but politically it may may help her in the long term. We'll see. There's a part of me that thinks uh, she could very well be declaring her own candidacy for the presidency sometime in the next six months to a year. We'll see how that goes. So to me, I think that's really what's key. And that's what I ask myself on a lot of occasions. I have a lot of friends I'm blessed with a lot of friends and many of them from across the political spectrum. I don't certainly have any friends that are on the far right, but I have a lot of friends who are more conservative, a lot of friends who are more liberal to take those very basic terms. And, you know, my friends who are conservatives are not fascists. They're believers in the rule of law. They care about other people and they differ with their liberal family members and friends on, yeah, some important issues but aren't willing to uh, hate the other person for it. Right? We'll debate them, but then end up having a beer with them when they're all done with that. And I have the same with friends who are on the left. They are not people who want to see America destroyed or don't care about the lives of babies or wants to destroy American culture. Instead, they just see the issues facing the country, the solutions of them being a bit different and with different expression. And many people in the country, I think, fit that bill. At our best, the majority of us, I think, are able to hold those positions with each other. 
And if we were willing to do so and did so intentionally, I think we would find that it's actually easier than we think. The problem is that center, if you will, away from the extremes, doesn't get much attention. It isn't as loud as the extremes, the Alex Jones on the right and whatever his equivalent is on the left. They aren't nearly as loud. And maybe they can't be. Maybe they can't draw that attention. But I know that one of the reasons I do this show so consistently, and I talk about these things this way, is because I can be one voice from that space. And continuing to put one's voice out into the space from this perspective, I think can be helpful. The last couple of weeks, we've talked with Tanya Zyka, who's Ukrainian, helping Ukrainian refugees. And she stressed over and over again, what one person continues to put out there can exponentially help many others. It's the same thing here, just in a different way. And so what it means to me is, as I learned a long time ago, is it's important to highlight the dangerous talk, the dangerous calls, the problems with rhetoric, the problems with positions that, you know, that aren't based on evidence. In fact, that must be done. It has to be. It's now gotten to the point where crackpot and conspiracy ideas have become so much more mainstream than anybody could have dreamed of, not even 10 years ago, that they have to be hit head on. It, there isn't the possibility of just letting them sit in the corner anymore and hopefully they'll fizzle out. That just isn't an option. Whether we're talking about American politics, Holocaust denial, whatever the case may be, we don't have that luxury anymore. However, that doesn't mean that we must adopt the same tactics as those that we are criticizing. To be sure, to be patient, to be clear, to lay out evidence and facts, to be measured, to be honest about what isn't known or what might not be provable, what might be a decent point from one side, but maybe why that point doesn't go as far as people think. That's just effective conversation, <laughs> but it's also us showing up as our best selves. It's really easy in this climate that we're in to show up with our worst selves. That's easy. That's super easy. <laughs> and we're all prone to it. I can certainly show up with my worst self on some of these things because these things matter and it's easy to get angry about them and it's understandable. Sometimes anger is completely justified. But what becomes unjustified is just because we're feeling anger or fear, that means any response that we decide to take is okay because of that. Anything we want to say, anything we want to do. Because in the end, those people on the other side of us have the same rights to be here as, as we do. Have the same rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as we do. They have the same rights to, to feel safe and be safe as we do. And it's supposed to be difficult. It's not supposed to be easy. Because the easy paths usually are only easy for a small number of people after a while. And they're difficult for everyone else. And that is a real risk in any given society at any given time. And I've studied history long enough to know that it can happen anywhere and has and will continue as long as human beings are human beings. That said... 
we aren't just creatures of our now. We are creatures designed to connect, designed to evolve, designed to grow, and designed to put our best forward. Our love of each other, our care for each other, our compassion for one another. We still make videos go viral of the best things rather than the worst things. It's a completely out from left field, (laughs) pardon the pun, but just the other day, one of the biggest viral videos of the last week was a kid from a team, a Little League team in Oklahoma who got beamed in the head by a pitcher from Texas. It turned out to be okay. He took first base, but he looked over at the pitcher who had just hit him, but that pitcher was so upset that he'd hit this kid that he, was, he seemingly wasn't able to pitch again. So this kid had just been hit in the head, walked, called for timeout, walked from first base to the pitcher's mound, embraced the pitcher, told him, hey, I'm okay. I know you didn't do it on purpose. Just go ahead and keep pitching. We're okay. And that exploded across the country as this classic example of sportsmanship. I would call it a classic example of connection and a willingness to care about somebody else, even a perfect stranger. We all want that deep down. I just think sometimes we want it to come from somebody else before it comes from us because then it's less scary. Anyway. So I didn't get quite to everything I wanted to get to, so I will sort of put off some of that stuff to the side. But I think this was, to me, it was important to talk about. It was important to consider. And I really appreciate you taking this time to spend this with me. And I'd love to hear what you think about any and all that I've had to say. And you can reach out to me at wordsbyjdk.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And would love to hear your thoughts and uh, get your feedback. So thank you for joining me for this episode. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, you check out uh, Airway Science for Kids. You heard about them during the breaks. Make sure you check them out at airside.org and see the amazing stuff that they're doing. And thanks again to them for all their support. If you missed any of this episode or any others, you can find them, find it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let me give my weekly thank yous. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tanya Zyka, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce Bullard, Stephen Crozier, Jay Parker, Phil McCoy, Sandy Straub, Antoinette Bernardo, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flommer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks also to whoever invented the in-home COVID test, to Waffles for reminding me of our long-standing mutual love to that kid from Oklahoma who hugged the pitcher from Texas who had just hit him in the head. And to whoever it was who turned in my wallet at the grocery store when I dropped it there a few days ago. You are my today hero. And of course, to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you and me without you. And finally, as a way to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. Take a deep breath, all, and remember that it starts with how we show up. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>